You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Evergen, providing cutting-edge energy management software for battery optimisation, virtual power plants and distributed energy resources. And Pylon, helping solar installers and retailers design high-resolution solar proposals in minutes. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the Energy Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy, along with the EV-focused The Driven and One Step Off The Grid. And I'm joined as usual in a big week for um, energy policy, uh, David Leach from ATK. David, um, I trust you are well. Giles, I am well. Uh, It is a huge week. We've got a lot to talk about, uh, but I want to start by uh, playing a a couple of little audio clips I recorded a couple of days ago here at my house. David, uh, what... Now, for Brad, who has a master's in environmental science, I'm sure he'll recognise that as the sounds of the local lyrebird that's just moved in here. Uh, and I thought I thought it would start us all off. Well, well, well look, I, I thought you were joking when you said you had a couple of things to say. <laughs> but there you go. I'm, I'm, I've, I've been completely stumped and completely derailed from my planned script. And um, you've partly introduced, I guess, even before I got round to it. But there you go. Um, fantastic having the lyrebird in the back garden. But um, it's beautiful. Look, uh, it has been a big week. 32 gigawatts of new capacity will be tendered and auctioned um, by federal and state governments under the new plan announced by Federal Energy Minister Chris Bowen this week. It is a landmark week, I think, for energy policy. Of course, this is a really, um, well, it, it's it's a fantastic announcement. It doesn't cure all the problems of the um, energy transition, as we will soon discuss. But one of the other things that uh, was announced this week and uh, was barely mentioned by mainstream media, but of course Renew Economy was all over it, um, was the result of the New South Wales tender for firm capacity. And when I say New South Wales tender, it's actually a joint tender in the end with the New South Wales government and the federal government. Very important tender for uh, firm capacity to help or possibly you know, replace the gap that was identified by AEMO for the closure of Araring. And the way that this tender was done is considered as something as a potential blueprint for what could follow in the federal scheme, even though those details are really meant to be announced. So that is a long way of introducing, via Lybirds and my rambling um, chat, uh, Brad Hopkins um, from AEMO, the head of commercial for AEMO Services, which has been responsible for the New South Wales tender and is also looking after the um, firm capacity storage tenders in Victoria and South Australia. Brad, thanks for joining this podcast. Thanks, Giles. Thanks, David. Great to be here with you both and your wildlife. (laughs) Um, I'm still quite derailed by that, but that's okay. I'm going to continue anyway. Look, this tender was quite fascinating. It's resulted in a AGL. We're not yet committing, but one of the winners of the tender was um, AGL's uh, Liddell battery, 500 megawatts, two hours. Um, Australia's biggest four-hour battery uh, by Acacia Energy, who are also building the um, Waratah Super Battery. They're going to be building a 415 megawatt four-hour battery over at Arana in the um, one of those uh, renewable energy zones. Ibadrollers put their hand up for a battery in Western Sydney, a smaller one, and there's a couple of virtual power plants put together by NLX. Um, 
it was a pretty good result, wasn't it? I'm going to get to the price later on what all that means. But um, sort of tell us about sort of you know the the interest. There's yeah. there's obviously a lot of interest. Um, there was a gas fire power station which applied but didn't get up. I, I presume I don't know. Um, what can you tell us? Yeah, well, one of the so, so the 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 tender came about because Minister Sharp, um, so Energy Minister in New South Wales, asked um, RCEMO Services to conduct a tender for firming infrastructure. Um, in in that direction, we were um, we, we were able to be technology agnostic, and the, the 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 challenge that we had to identify was a 2025-2026 gap in in the Sydney Newcastle Wollongong subregion, so the area around Sydney. Um, in in tackling that challenge that the minister set for us, um, we we were we were technology technology agnostic so we put together a tender design um, with with a series of price signals a series of locational signals that that sought to allow a whole range of different projects and technologies to compete um, and they were competing for a contract for contract for financial support that would um, sort of allow those projects to be accelerated and brought forward um, in order to um, help the minister meet her objective um, we were then um, delighted that the federal and state um, ministers collaborated to make that tender larger to sort of acknowledge some of the challenges that we're facing in New South Wales. Um, that allowed us to, to bring in, um, not, not to change the tender at all, so the tender remained the same and the parameters remained the same, um, but to allow us to add um, additional capacity to, to that tender. Um, and so that, that, that process of effectively getting technologies to compete against each other and getting different locations to compete against each other. Um, it was it was quite a journey. It wasn't easy to put together something like that. But I, one of the things that really pleases me about the outcome is how we've had demand response for our batteries to our batteries kind of prevail in a in a suite of bidders that included you know, gas and other technologies as well. So what, what, what interests me about this is that um, they were asked to sort of bid um, in this way this auction was done for these long-term energy service agreements and also an annual annuity. Um, what I find fascinating is that these are really, so a lot of people think about, oh, this is a tender, it's a subsidy for these the, the, these batteries and these these other projects. But they're really something different, aren't they? They're really just like an insurance or a, a backstop. I was talking to one of the win, win, winning tenderers um, the other day, and they said uh, wh why this works is that it basically eliminates the worst-case scenario for them. So it makes it easier for them to get finance, and they may not actually use or even touch the two mechanisms that they've actually bid for, which I think when we talked to you the other day, you said that this basically means that we get these batteries, three of them, plus the demand response, at what could be very little, low cost or even little or, or even no cost to the um, to the consumer. Can you explain how that works? Yeah, certainly. Um, so when we design products at AEMO services, we, we go back to first principles and um, and those first principles are very embedded in energy economics and the econo and, and you know, the theory of um, energy markets and one of the things that we have in Australia which we need to you know, fight hard to preserve through the energy transition is a really effective um, functional national electricity market that has good price signals it's got a good contracts market 
um, it has some wonderful features. And so we look at that market um, and we say, what? Why isn't this market building batteries? You know, if if AEMO and others are saying we need this capacity, um, why why isn't the market delivering that capacity? And we identify barriers or market failures to that. Um, when we looked at the 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 firming market, um, what we identified was for uh, for two hour batteries. Um, you know, there's there, there's not much that's needed. There's there's a bit of there's some challenges around um, change in law, and there are some challenges around extremely bad outcomes that might be brought about by changes in regulation or excessive government intervention or, or just a, a NEM that you know, technology change and a whole bunch of the other uncertainties. Um, demand response had a different set of challenges for our batteries had a slightly different set of challenges as well. but. We, we figured out that um, each of those challenges could be addressed by doing um, what in, in sort of energy markets language is, is called a missing money payment. So the, the electricity market as it stands today isn't able to provide enough compensation to these projects. Um, it's expected that as the electricity market evolves in future that it will be able to deliver enough money for these projects, but there's a lot of uncertainty about how we get from A to B. and some of the examples of that, so we're seeing AEMO introduce new FCAS markets that are providing new revenue um, to, to these projects. We're seeing a whole range of different markets emerge that don't exist today. So we look at that and we say, right, there's a, missing, there's a bit of money missing. Um, we will offer that money to projects um, and if projects need it, we'll pay them. Um, if they don't need it because these markets have emerged or they're able to generate enough revenue from other sources, then we, we won't pay them. And by we, I mean New South Wales electricity consumers who, who shoulder the burden of the costs under this under the New South Wales roadmap. And so by designing a mechanism that just targets a missing money payment, um, you can top projects up or you can protect them from those extreme risks, um, but you leave them free to participate in the markets, to you know, participate in the contracts markets, to sell caps, to work in the wholesale market, um, to access new markets. And by providing that flexibility, you minimise the payment that you need to make to those projects. So um, you are correct, Giles, that under some future market scenarios, so where these markets emerge and where, where the projects are able to operate profitably, um, which you know, is, is what we expect under some future scenarios, um, New South Wales electricity consumers won't pay um, anything for those projects. Uh, Brad, I'd like to move. The story is just very interesting, uh, and there's a lot to be said. And it's interesting that batteries are starting to dominate um, uh, the tenders that are awarded, and there's a lot to talk about there. But I, I have a big focus on the actual underlying bulk energy because, at the end of the day, uh, storage, dispatchable power that's winning these contracts is, is, is not generation, it's a consumer of energy. Yep. Um, uh, and so for me, I'm very focused on the on the wind and the salt, the variable renewable energy. Um, one of, and of course, that's been held up by the transmission thing. But when I look at the um, uh, infrastructure objectives report or draft development report that uh, AEMO Services published back in May, it has a lot of uh, tenders and um, uh, capacity energy awards that are kind of model that's almost coming online before the transmission to Irana and the, even the Hunter and certainly New England is actually built. What can you say about that? 
Yeah, so no, really happy to to talk about that. Um, so the the IAO report, um, for those who aren't familiar, is it's produced by my colleague Melanie Kerner, um, and it's a report that AEMO Services publishes that is intended to show um, how energy transition is going to play out in New South Wales over the next ten to twenty years. Um, it it is updated very regularly, so I think we've updated it every six months, um, and it's it's updated because the market is so dynamic. Um, and the David, your point is that the the it it shows um, a 20, 20, 20 terawatt hours essentially uh, by about twenty twenty six or twenty twenty seven uh, of, of of awards, which in the graphs is almost depicted as if it's operating uh, by then. Yes. So, so what, I haven't got that report in front of me, but I know it, it says we're going to hit tw- the 12 gigawatt statutory target um, by 2030. So the the report sort of outlines that. The absolutely that build out is dependent on transmission being delivered, and there's a whole range of transmission projects that it relies on. Um, if those transmission projects don't happen or are late, then those targets will be challenged. And the, I, I think what is, um, like I, I, I don't want to understate the the importance of the, the transmission, how dependent we are on it, and how, um, how scarce transmission has become, particularly in New South Wales. So we are in a, a, a very difficult situation achieving those targets without um, very material new transmission built out. Uh, okay, all right, but but nevertheless, as I understand it, uh, that report uh, I won't spend too much more time on it now because it wasn't the subject, but it was report produced that report with Energy Services and the Transmission, the two of them uh, reports. I mean, Energy Services and the trustee work together on this stuff, don't they? Can I just? En- yeah, Energy Co. Um, Energy so Co. the yeah, en- Energy Co. is the New South Wales government entity that is. Um, they're identified as the infrastructure planner, so they have to organise the transmission build out of greenfield renewable energy zones. So yes, we do work very closely together with Energy Co. Um, the and and so what you'll see in that report is that transmission is built is expected to be built before the generation comes on. So the report um, sort of assumes that, and it assumes that transmission can be built. Um, those are based on reasonable assumptions and there's supply chain constraints and other things in there. Um, I, I think the interesting question is, like, is is that transmission going to be able to be built within those timeframes? And, um, you know, without a shadow of a doubt, like, that is a very challenging... Um, to, to build any large infrastructure project with the challenges we've got in international supply chains, Whilst working with local communities um, and delivering in a in a um, in a constrained sort of economy here, with with labour and other things, is very very challenging. Well, Brad, uh, I, it is, and yet I look back to my time covering the Queensland LNG development when not one but three transmission pipes were built, thousands of CSG wells with all the social licence issues were drilled. Uh, three LNG plants were built on Curtis Island. Total investment in today's dollars, probably over $100 billion, and it all got done in six years. 
so I'm, um, uh, I don't want to take up more time talking to you about uh, what I think about planning in New South Wales, but uh, I will be talking about it some more. But let, let, <laughs> let's, yeah. let's talk about uh, 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 the, the, um, uh, uh, the, the ceiling and floor and El Tessa contracts because we've got the new uh, and what's going on in South Australia. I think the great uh, sort of, it's clear how consumers benefit from it, but it's not really clear to me how, how the, even the Altessa stuff really, despite your answer, really provides much of a benefit to, the, to a wind or a solar. They can just bid in it next to nothing. And then if they get their project up well and good, uh, and if they don't, well, bad luck. You just guys just have to retender. What's the kind of, um, you know, two questions are, how does it really help like a wind or a solar developer? Uh, because yeah. it doesn't help the equity provider. At best, it helps the debt. And secondly, what's the safeguard to stop um, lots of people being awarded stuff that can't actually deliver? Yeah, no, good, good questions. And look, we've had um, we've had criticism from um, investors and developers that say the mechanism is not um, rewarding enough. So it's not it's not a sufficient incentive for us. Um, we've had criticism that says we should be setting floors um, and we shouldn't be allowing the 10, like we shouldn't necessarily be allowing the, the kind of lowest bidder to win. Um, we've had, so we've had a range of criticisms around around the mechanism and we're always open to, to listening to, to that feedback. The, 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 so just in terms of are the people who are bidding genuine and do they really believe that they can deliver their project? Uh, so we do a range of due diligence through the tender process. So we, we get a whole bunch of information in. Um, we, we, and that this process takes six months um, end to end. So we assess the viability of the project. Um, and and that is a, it's a best estimate because a lot of things change and a lot of things go wrong. Um, things also go better than expected occasionally, but, but you know, generally things end up worse than we expect. The... So, so we are relying on the projects to to kind of push push through some of those challenges. The way we manage kind of the 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 incentive to bid and receive a contract and then walk away is through bonding. Um, so we, when people bid, we take a fairly substantial bond. I think it's around half a million dollars um, just to participate in the tender. And then when people sign a contract with us, so when they sign an Alteza. Um, for a 300 megawatt project, that that's around four million dollars, and so there is a bonding commitment that projects put up, um, and that's exactly to address that issue you identified, David, where you, you know you don't want to give people a free option to take the contract or not. Um, is that perfect as a as a mitigant? Um, it's not, but we felt it sets the right balance between an incentive an incentive for them to to behave appropriately in the tender. Um, and I can talk about how the product can be used by um, projects, if that's helpful as well. Uh, it, 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 it will be helpful. Can I just throw in one more question before I hand back to Giles as part of the, and I hate asking two questions at once, but it would be helpful to understand how the product is, is used. Someone else wanted me to ask about, uh, anyway, um, but the thing is, the and it relates to the federal scheme indirectly, there's this great... The chat is that it's just going to result in a whole lot of solar projects because they'll be lower cost. Whereas if I look at the 
ISP, uh, it calls for a lot of wind. And it's the same in New South Wales. And something I know uh, you think about is this balance between solar and wind. Um, but wind is probably not going to bid in as low as solar. So how do you think about that? Yeah, so what what we assess is the the cost of the Alteza, um, and and I imagine we'll apply a similar approach to the CIS um, nationally. So you assess the cost of what what's being asked for against the value of the energy that's being produced. So it's a cost benefit analysis, um, and so solar is obviously. Um, it's generally lower cost, um, but the value of the energy that those projects produce is also lower. Um, and wind is higher cost, but the value of the energy is significantly higher. And so when you balance um, no, a megawatt isn't a megawatt, you assess the value of the megawatt that's being provided. Um, and when we assess that, we do stochastic analysis um, using a whole range of different future scenarios, different weather years to assess how much is this project actually going to be worth to the national electricity market? And, and, and so, you you know, the ISP comes up with a view, but you wouldn't explicitly consider that you'd do separate modelling? We start with the ISP, and um, and that's, that's a helpful base in terms of what the future market's going to look like. Um, and I think one of the great services the ISP does for the market is it, it it takes out some of the complexity of having to think through all of those individual assumptions to make about the future market. Um, and then we run a whole range of sensitivities. So we'll, we'll assume a world where there's a lot more solar, we'll assume a world where there's a lot more wind, we'll assume a world where um, there's more aggressive cost reductions. We'll assume a world where there's the cost of capital is higher and build out is slower. We'll assume a world where there's um, less transmission and we have a, a, um, a sort of a bumpy transition. So we look, we start with the ISP, look at a whole range of things. And it's, it's interesting that in our assessment, the projects we've supported have tended to be robust under more future scenarios than than the projects we haven't supported. So it's about how resilient is a project in its value. And, and, and for the developer then, you were going to just finally mention uh, about how developers actually use these? Uh, yeah, so I think, I think one of the things that we've, um, we've, we've not done as effectively as I would have liked is to convey to people how, how they can use the Alteza. And so what we saw through 10 to 1, and we're focused now on generation, so wind and solar, um, we saw very low prices bid um, for, some, for some projects. And, um, no, and we, they, they were sort of vanilla structures. So people were bidding just a straight, um, a straight Alteza strike price um, that, that was um, no, relatively low to protect their, their debt payments. And, and given the, the nature of those investors and the nature of those projects, that made sense for them. Um, we're in tender three, which is still ongoing. Um, so these results haven't been haven't been announced yet. And but we're seeing a lot more innovation in how the Altez is used. So we're seeing people um, say, right, we don't we don't need support for the first ten years of the project. We need support for the second ten years of the project. And um, and we're seeing people have um, sort of lower lower strike prices in some periods and higher strike prices in another in other periods. So I think there is a lot people can do with the Alteza to support their project. 
Um, but if people simply look at what other people have done and draw a conclusion um, that it's not help, it's not supportive, um, then I think I think that neglects to look at the sort of the, the versatility and some of the options that they've got. And it, it is really pleasing in ten to three to see some of those innovations come through. Um, and you know, we're supporting. You know, f fingers crossed. You know, we'll support a range of projects in ten to three. Um, that that use the Alteza in some really creative ways. Hmm. And just to sort of clarify, then Tinder three is actually a combination of I think it's what well, it's the equivalent. I think you're looking for about three thousand gigawatt hours, so it's roughly about a gigawatt of either wind or solar, depending on the mix, um, and up to about five hundred and fifty or six hundred megawatts of long duration storage. So, um, which is the eight hour storage, which I think was won in the first round by an eight hour battery. So it'd be interesting to see whether you have more eight hour batteries or if a um, pumped hydro thing manages to sneak in. But um, I. I'd rather suspect the former, but you probably can't comment on that. Yeah, it won't be long until we've we've sort of run that process to ground. Um, so we're expecting announcements on that before Christmas. Um, okay. Yeah, I'm happy to happy to come back and talk about those when it's when it's announced. We'll be fascinated to hear um, what happens. Now, the other tender that you guys are involved with and and, and was sort of mentioned before was South Australia and Victoria. Um, um, so there's like, I think this, um, look, I get a bit confused, but I think it's about 600 megawatts of sort of four hour storage, um, split between Victoria and South Australia, I think 200 megawatts of each or something like that. And then 200 megawatts to the state, which has got the best, the next best project or something like that. So, yes. um, what, what can you tell us about that? I mean, is, is it just storage? It's not, it's not generation, is it? It's, it's just storage and firm capacity to be able to fill in whatever gaps AYEMO has identified in those two states. Yeah, that that's correct. So it is just it is just storage. Um, so it doesn't address the sort of energy shortages that David was talking about earlier. Just the capacity shortages that are being experienced in those two markets. And um, it's it's the um, it, it it is as you described, Giles. So six hundred megawatts. Um, there's there's quite a lot of material that we've recently published on that tender, um, which covers the the product design, the merit criteria, sort of the dates for the tender. So um, people who are, are interested should look at the AEMO services website. Um, the, the process is going to kick off in um, mid-December, and then I think the end of Feb, um, those, bids are, those bids are due. So, um, and it's, it is really exciting to be running um, you know, work, partnering with the Commonwealth to run to run that um, that CIS tender in, in those states and hopefully we'll form a blueprint for lots of um, exciting things to come. Well, I mean, and, and that's interesting too because, I mean, we are talking about a potential blueprint. I mean, um, Chris Bowen has not actually revealed these, the final details of his auctions. I mean, and, and just to sort of consider a little bit for the, the scale of the auctions that he's proposing, he wants things to be sort of, you know, uh, tendered by 2027 because he feels that that's the time that um, you need to get certainty and contracts for projects so they can actually get built in time for 2030. So we're talking about, you know... Eight, um, eight gigawatts of wind and solar a year, uh, basically. That's what I was just about to say. In my next sentence, absolutely, yeah, that's right. So you know, um, uh, auctions. So, so what are the learnings? I mean, what can what, what can we expect? I mean, you know, if if you were to draw anything from your experience, um, I guess it's probably too early to tell with South Australia and Victoria, but with New South Wales, you know, what have you learnt from this that could be applied um, to whatever design um, that Bowen um, um, comes up with? The um, so, so firstly, I think it's a really great 
great scheme and um, AEMO's is delighted to partner with the Commonwealth to, to help um, bring sort of energy markets expertise and that delivery expertise to, to the minister's ambitions. Um, the, I, I think the, we're very clear on how the SAVIC tender will be, will be delivered um, and, and on the product for that. So it is going to be a collar product with a, with a floor and a, a ceiling price. And then between those two, the, the... And so that's different to, that's different from New South Wales because there's just a floor in New South Wales. Am I, am I right about that? Yes. Yeah. So it is, it is different to New South Wales. Um, and, and so the, the, and, and it, it has, um, it has it has sort of some different features. What what we are sort of looking to do through the tender is is really to ensure that the parameters that are important um, for the energy markets um, are preserved. So and you know, we preserve them with the Alteza design. Um, we're seeking to preserve them with the with the CIS design, and I think there's there's strong alignment um, and desire by the Commonwealth to to sort of preserve some of those good features. Um, those those features are that the projects are incentivized to operate in the national electricity market, that the projects are incentivized to operate in the contracts market. Um, so that, that again is critically important. Um, and that the in, in New South Wales, we focus on cost and risk to consumers. In the CIS, we'll be focusing on minimizing cost and risk to taxpayers who will be funding those contracts. Um, so whilst the commercial mechanism is slightly different, I, I expect in terms of the outcomes for projects and, and, and government, um, it will be quite similar. So would it be fair to say then that if, if this was applied in the same way as the New South Wales one, and I know there's a cap and a collar rather than, uh, sorry, a floor and a collar rather than just a floor, the cost, if everything goes well, that basically these the, these projects get an incentive to get finance and they can get built and then they can work out what they're going to do in the market. The the cost to the government, as you say in this case, may, may be less than what people might think. I, I think that if you are able to run, to design your product appropriately and you know, very small um problems with the product can cause very significant impacts on cost. Um, so if you can design your product appropriately and if you can run a really competitive process um, and pick the best projects, so it's about it's about finding the, be the better projects, um, then those two things could result in the cost of this being... Um, I, d I don't want to give the impression that energy transition isn't going to cost something, um, but the because it, it is, and I think we do a disservice if we if we sort of say that it's not. Um, but you can certainly minimise costs, and by minimising costs, you you mean that government and consumers can do more, um, and so that's at eight gigawatts a year. It's a lot of best projects, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and and look, that's one of the questions: is is um, you know, are there going to be enough wind projects around to actually sort of bid into this because of all the planning problems we've got in places like New South Wales and elsewhere? David, I mean, you know, you're, you're a bit worried about that, aren't you? Uh, sorry, I, I, I absolutely think there has to be a complete rocket under the planning uh, departments around the place. Uh, I, I really do. They, they're supposed to be planning. That means helping. But what, all they are doing at the moment is putting bombs up. I heard last night at a presentation uh, about New South Wales that, you know, developers, uh, EIS, the planning department cancels site visits uh, that developers want, they request more studies. It's just a, a, a you know checking boxes type thing, 
rather than actually planning. I mean, you know, if you were, a, um, if you if think of an REZ at the moment, what it looks like is a few coordinates on a map, a transmission that goes in there and some amount of capacity. Like if you were in town planning 101 and you handed that in as your town plan, you wouldn't get uh, much of a result, I don't think. Uh, you know, and uh, I, I just think the whole thing's been totally underprepared from a planning department. It's just completely useless, frankly, at the moment. Yeah. No, well, we've, we've sort of documented some of those planning issues um, on Renew Economy, um, particularly over the sort, of the, the, the sort of farcical wind farm map um, or wind project map last week. Dave, I've got a couple of other questions um, for you. One, I'm just wondering um, what impact you think it might have on the big utilities, which are kind of in the focus at the moment. We had Canon Brooks trying to put a rocket up AGL um, a couple of days ago before their AGM about sort of getting the transition moved faster. We've got sort of Brookfield lobbying a bid. Um, um, or that shareholder meeting was supposed to be held yesterday has now been put off. But the fact that the, good, the federal government's now coming in with this tender process, I mean, does that sort of cut out the utilities to, 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 to some extent? And look, I've got another question for you too, is that is this actually going to get us to 82% renewables? So I, I'd like to hear your view about, because I've been hearing from, from people just sort of saying, this is really interesting because it basically the utilities had a stranglehold on the market. If you wanted to get something built, you had to find a contract with the utility. Now they don't necessarily well, need to actually, do that. Well, actually, I'm not sure that's, that's right because, and I, I welcome Brad's view, who I think has thought about this very, very deeply, but it's one thing for a developer to get a a floor price, but as we've just discussed, at best that might help with some of the debt, but it's not going to give any return to equity. Uh, and so in the end, the output still has to be sold at, 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 a, a, at a price to someone. And at the moment, it's still going to be the gentailers because they've got the actual customers. Uh, Brad, I, I, you know, I'd like to ask you again uh, about how does equity get some comfort out of this? Out of, what's in it for equity in this national scheme, using the New South Wales example uh, as a perspective? Yeah, yeah. So um, I was just reflecting that I was glad Giles asked you those questions and not me, David. Um, <laughs> but but I'm very happy to have a go. The um, so. So the way the competitive tenders work is that if people are bidding into the tenders and equity needs a return, um, then the prices in the tender will be higher. And and so if we're trying to do eight gigawatts a year, I, I that was your number. I'm not I'm not sort of sure what the number is, but whatever that number is, if if the the projects that are bidding in need um, that level of support, so they need equity support, then you'll see that come through in the prices. And the same is true in New South Wales with the Alteza. So if, if prices are higher because there's more projects that, that need support, then you'll see the prices go up. Um, so we don't fix the price. We don't have a price floor. We don't have a price ceiling. Um, we don't even produce sort of guidance prices. It's just what the market says it needs. And, and so I think the same will be true of the Commonwealth scheme based on the published material is that there's going to be competitive tenders. Um, and if people can innovate and if they can come up with other ways of securing their equity revenue, um, then they will, and, and they don't need that level of support, they don't need the higher price, then they will beat somebody who does. Um, and and so that's why competitive tenders deliver, deliver good outcomes. Um, the what what we've seen 
for the Alteza on this point is that people are showing up to the tenders and Giles, you're right, like previously people needed a 15-year PPA with a creditworthy utility in order to get a project built. Um, they're showing up to our tenders and they're saying, we need enough financial support from the Alteza to pay our debt back, um, but we're happy and we've got a five-year contract with a medium-sized company or a large corporate or a, a, you know, a new entrant retailer. Um, and our equity investors are happy to take the risk that we get another contract in another five years. So you're still seeing people use PPAs to manage their equity returns. Um, they're just managing those in a different way, using the contracts market in a different way. Mm. And they're, they're able to get much higher prices um, for shorter PPAs with different sorts of counterparties than they are with the limited number of but credit that market, utilities. that market, Brad, has well, that limits. The... That's not an eight gigawatt a year market, uh, I don't think. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think one of the things about this is it's going to... I do think that the deposits that are required, for me, four million's not even enough. Uh, you know, it has to be... Uh, you don't want... I, I think this is going to sort out the small guys from the big guys uh, because clearly to do this is going to yeah. require industrial scale processes, you know, in turbine and, and panel sourcing and, set, and people sourcing and, you know, people skills above everything else. Um, uh, yeah. um, but I, 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 you know, you are going to be selling to the Gentiles in the end. They have like 60 or 70% of the load. They're going to have to be big buyers of these PPAs uh, one way or another. They certainly don't have the projects from what I've seen to actually do it themselves. Uh, I agree with those observations. Yeah, so it's not... Um that they are the they are the, the the largest participants in the market um they will be the sort of the larger participants in the contracts market they will be the people contracting with these projects but i think it just sort of redresses the balance i think that's fair to say though that um about who has you know it's sort of um you know there was one party, the utilities, that basically dominated the market. And as you said, people needed to have a 15-year PPA to get to there, and they weren't getting them. So now they've got another option. Um, you know, I was sort of talking to, to, to one person sort of quite well-placed, and they just sort of said, you know, the important part of these contracts is that it removes the downside. So when you've got financiers and equity people looking at the risks and things like that, if you can take out the worst-case scenario then you've actually got a much happier bunch of people who can go forward and then sort of see what the opportunities are. But as David said, once you're talking, talking about eight gigawatts well, a year... Well, Giles, an, another thing about this, dimension. if we look in New South Wales, has been this hold-up over getting the uh, Arana uh, transmission contract done, right? So you're asking some... Let's say you want to get a super fund involved. They want to... You know, they, they may have a lower ultimate return on equity if, if the project has a very low cost of capital because everything's relatively certain. We know the wind and the solar is needed. That's, you can take, in my opinion, you can take risk on that. But if you're asking people to contract without knowing what their transmission costs are going to be, for instance, that, that's nearly impossible, you know. So, so we need to have the pricing for the... And I think there is a role for, somehow or other, for the transmission pricing to be known good and early, given what's, what's going on here. Well, that begs another question, um, and you might be able to answer this, um, Brad. Um, the auction for access rights um, for the first um, Central West Arana zone was supposed to be held this year as part of this latest tender, or the new tender, Tender 4, but it's not going to happen. Um, can you give any sort of shed any light on that? Yeah, and 
it is a so so we had hoped to to run it in sort of starting starting now so in 10 to 4 um it's now going to be in um the 10 to 5 so um sort of q1 q2 next year the the, the main and i agree with everything that david said like giving generators clarity um on on transmission costs and timing is is really important the what what we've discovered on the journey with with CWO is that there and and so when I say discovered, we knew it was there. It's 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 just that um, it it's just th this is the kind of cause of the of the um, of the, the shift in the tender date. There are a lot of stakeholders who care very deeply about transmission, and the there there are. Um, there are sort of generators are, are one set of stakeholders. The local community are another set of stakeholders. Um, market bodies who have to be responsible um, for for sort of running running the transmission um, and you know, in, in AEMO's case, um, you know, running running the network. Um, and then you've got sort of really importantly consumer groups who are going to pay pay the costs of the of the transmission. And when we're when we're designing schemes where there is a sharing of, um, so you're introducing a new part, a new NSP, which is exciting. Um, so, but that that's got complexity around it. You are introducing new models where generators are paying for some of the transmission and consumers are paying for some of the transmission. Um, it's greenfield, so it's it's being built. Um, no, major major new like gigawatts and gigawatts of transmission that's being built from Greenfield. Um, all of those things are, are complex and require, um, and, and if you want to do it properly, you need to you need to kind of work with all those parties and those groups. Um, so you so build a shared Having said all that, I, so I'm that, uh, very optimistic that it'll all be announced by Christmas. There you go. That's my uh, Christmas bet. Fantastic. I, I look forward to that. <laughs> <laughs> Look, um, we've, um, I think we might be coming to the end of our little journey here. Um, Brad, um, just before we go, actually, Brad, David, is there anything else that you want to make any observations about the, um, the, the Bowen announcement um, this week? I mean, it's, um, it just seems to be a very much a landmark moment. Um, there are various gaps to fill in. The question about transmission that we discussed, the question about social license, as we've, as we've discussed, the question about sort of um, household energy, which is not really addressed by this, but it probably wasn't designed to be addressed. Um, anything else that you want to observe? Well, I do think that behind the meter, household batteries are something that, that can do a lot of capacity uh, in a hurry, and there's a workforce ready to install, and we've said that. I won't repeat that again. My observations about the scheme are, firstly, it shows that uh, I think the government, the federal government in this case, is very serious about it. I like the national approach. Uh, I think it helps to bring the NEM together to, 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 um, and also you know, the cooperation with the states. And then of course, there is just the speed of it. Uh, I think the speed is going to take a while to sink in and what actually delivering on something that big, uh, that quickly is going to require proper industrialization stuff like a war more or less where everyone is going to have to get on board with this is what's happening uh, now the social license things are what they are but i look at that queensland csg uh, example that's in front of us from only a decade ago and i know it can be done 
if everyone wants it to happen. It's people and willpower that will get it done. Yes, um, there's probably another debate to be had about um, how um, fair and equitable that um, CSG thing was for some of the landowners, but um, we might have to leave that there. I guess that's part of the problem with the uh, with the social licence issues, and we've kind of seen that actually just this week with the New South Wales government sort of re releasing its um, uh, through Energy Co. It's you know possible path through the Hunter Valley um, for the um, Hunter Transmission Link, which is an essential part of bringing the you know the renewable energy from those zones into the major load centres, and they're kind of trying to navigate a path through mines through the sort of the wine country of the um, of, of the Hunter Valley and then sort of along existing easements and um, it's sort of um, treading over sort of uh, um, eggshells uh, to some extent. Um, Brad, look, it's been great having you on board. Is there any sort of final observation you'd like to make or? Um, um... No, only to sort of echo what David said, like I, I really, um, the, the, the kind of ministers and the civil servants who are sort of stepping in to take these bold steps on on energy um I, I really applaud and it is it is incredibly complex it's incredibly difficult but but really important and i i just think it's um for, for those people who are taking the risk and sort of sticking their neck out to try and get this done um i think that's a fantastic effort and one that um, we should all be supporting yeah good people doing good things so um very much so look thank you very much brad um brad hopkins from the uh, head of commercial for aemo services for joining us um on this podcast um Thank you, David, and thank you for your wonderful lyrebird um, sounds. Maybe we can actually sort of exit with some of those sounds. But before we do, I'll uh, give you a chance to get them ready, David. Um, I'd just like to thank our sponsors, uh, Evergen and Pylon. Um, do have a listen to some of our other podcasts. We had a really interesting um, interview with uh, Solar Citizens on the Solar Insiders podcast, and Anne Delaney has been doing some fantastic interviews for the um, Switched On podcast, which sort of focuses on electrification. A fantastic interview with... Um, someone from Ireland the other week, um, somebody else about um, community batteries and the controversy and the, you know, the way that they can be improved. So um, thank you very much. And um, David, do you have a lyrebird sound to take us out? We'll be back again next week. Bye for now. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Evergen the market-leading renewable energy software business that optimises residential and commercial solar and battery systems. Evergen enables large numbers of systems to operate as a single fleet, so network operators can use them as a virtual power plant, generating significant value for consumers, network operators and the energy system as a whole. Evergen Software is powering the energy system of the future. Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Pylon. Pylon provides easy-to-use solid design software for installers and retailers with pay-as-you-go pricing, no monthly cost and no locking contracts. Join Australia's top solar companies who trust Pylon to design high-resolution, CEC-ready solar proposals.